Don't at me, but Afro-Asianism is the future, and it may just save our lives. Talking to Jeff Chang, author, provocateur, <laughs> right after the theme song. Okay, look, so you are listening to Don't At Me. I'm your host, Justin Simeon, and this week I'm sitting down with writer and music critter, Jeff... Ch- critter? Critter? I could be a critter. That's, That's the most good. racist thing I've ever said. <laughs> I think we should leave this in. Um, okay. Anyway, I'm sitting down with a writer and a music critic, <laughs> Jeff Chang, and that doesn't even do you sort of justice, that description. I met you on a panel uh, with Spike Lee. Yeah. Um, I was familiar with your book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop. And I think you had just, um, I think you just put out Who We Be, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, let me see. We Gonna Be All Right is 2016. Yeah. yeah. Who We Be is what you had put out at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jeff has had an amazingly storied upbringing. He is a Hawaiian of Chinese descent. When he was in college at UC Berkeley, he was a student organizer in the anti-apartheid movement. What were you doing in college (laughs) that was going on at the time? Were you even alive then? (laughs) (laughs) He also had the nerve to run an independent hip-hop label in 1993 and has since written about hip-hop, its cultural implications on American society, and a number of really important things. Your most recent book, uh, We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on race and resegregation is incredibly necessary, and it's also a quick read on everything that's going on in America right now. What's up, Jeff? What's up, Justin? Let's start with the easy questions. Okay, please. What, are we, what the <laughs> hell are we going to do? Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I'm terrified, Jeff, <laughs> of the state of race relations in America. Just break down the solutions just really quick. Just, let, just give, let's get oh, that off oh, the list. okay, yeah. Yeah, just so tell, me, what, just tell just, me physically my, my what to do. My top five plans yeah, to solve racism. Yeah, just like, who do I vote for? Where do I... Pr- just tell me what, what's the plan. What are we doing? How do we get out of this? Wow. <laughs> I think you're doing everything you can, man, like with all the work that you're doing. Um, I just think... We got to change the culture. Yeah. You know, I feel like the culture now is one of division. It's one of polarization. It's one of adding folks, you know? Yeah. And adding folks. Yeah. yeah absolutely. You know? And it's, and it's a kind of thing where, you know, it's weird when I was young and angry, I'm not even post young anymore. I was young and angry, then post young and angry. Now I'm old and angry. <laughs> Shut up, Jeff. <laughs> but, but. Don't look a day over 23. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, man. Yeah, we wear it well. They yeah? say black don't crack, but neither whatever proper term for for Asians are. <laughs> <laughs> don't at me. I can't say yellow. Well, how do you? How would you refer? You, you know, it's funny. Asian We've had a Chinese debate about that. Or... We've had. I'm I'm actually uh, Chinese and a native Hawaiian. Ah, okay. So okay, and it's an interesting thing because when you say Hawaiian, right? Mm-hmm. People assume it's because you're from the islands, but yeah. a Hawaiian is you know, an ethnicity. Right. And so folks of Hawaiian descent uh, are always like, you know, that's not really the right terminology for that. So we'll record that part. It's fine. No, you don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to be a music critter, cultural critter. (laughs) Well, whatever blend of ethnicities you are, they don't crack. Uh, We don't, we don't, we don't. And I mean, you know, my folks are, gosh, my folks are, you know, my folks have been around, and mm-hmm. they look like they're in their 50s. I know, man. It's that's just, crazy. I'm sure your folks are like that, too. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. It's nuts. Yeah. It's weird. I'm, I'm excited about aging. Um, yeah. I-, <laughs> I actually really love what you said about culture. It's, sort of, it's why I call my production company Culture Machine. I think, like, mm. culture is the stories that we tell ourselves. Right. And that's what I think distinguishes us from Mm -hmm. the rest of the planet is that we have the ability to tell ourselves stories and create a world 
yes. you know, that doesn't exist in nature but exists in our minds. I want to read a quote that really uh, sticks out for me that you said, and I want you to talk about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you said, uh, culture like food is necessary to sustain us. It molds us and shapes our relations to each other. An inequitable culture is one in which people do not have the same power to create, access, or circulate their practices, works, ideas, and stories. It is one in which people cannot represent themselves equally. To say that American culture is inequitable is to say that it moves us away from seeing each other in our full humanity. Talk to me about that. Unpack that for me. Because that's like my philosophy in life. Yeah, and it goes back to your first question, I think. You know, um, if we if we create the seeds of a culture that brings people together, that mm-hmm. allows folks to be able to see each other in their full humanity, um, then we've got a chance to basically survive. I mean, God yeah. knows we've got huge issues on this planet. And I tell my kids, I tell my students, you know, um, the two biggest issues are going to confront during their times is uh, climate change, mm-hmm. which is the ultimate issue, right? Yes. It involves us all. And, uh, and of course, before that, if we are all going to be minorities, like how do we form a new majority? Right. Um, and what is that majority going to point towards? And so at this particular point, yeah, I feel like you, you know, I feel I'm angry, but I'm trying hard to figure out how to transmute that anger into something that is more positive. And I don't mean like just basically falling down and like allowing people to kick me in the head or that kind of thing, right? It's not this turn the other cheek type of thing. It's the stand up and fight type of thing of we've got to fight for all of us. Right. We can't allow people to be, you know, figuring out how to pigeonhole us and divide us and and continue to point us in a direction of death, Mm -hmm. really. We're living in a death culture. I mean, I I think what's so interesting about what you're saying is that, you know, when people hear people like me or or actors or whatever talking about representation, Mm -hmm. and I I was having a conversation with someone the other day about, like, you know, in, in totally as a joke, just saying, you know, oh, yeah, you know, being white is like the worst thing in America right now. It's like, no, that's not it. You know, it's this feeling that, like, yeah. we're just whining about representation yeah. or that we are just like we somehow have an advantage because mm. we're other. But what you're saying is that the reason and, – and I agree with you. The reason why representation is so important is because it shapes the culture. That's right. And the culture shapes us. That's right. Yeah. I mean, do you think – what do you think? Like, is it culture? Is it politics? Is it both? Like, what's really going to bring us to this next place? I mean, it's all of the above. To? But I feel like the culture is the piece that moves the politics, right? Mm. The culture is the thing that sort of surrounds the politics. It's the thing that drives us to to – to vote. It's the thing that drives us not to vote. Like my entire generation, folks didn't want to vote. Yeah. Um, and for good reasons. It's because you looked at government and you said to yourself, why would I vote? Like these folks are just going to figure out other ways to incarcerate us. And they did. Right. And they still are. Right. And then we said to ourselves at some point, we got older and we said, we've got to figure out a way to make our power known. And so people began organizing. And, mm-hmm. and it came from a cultural kind of point of view, this idea of like, if we're going to improve our ourselves, right, then we've got to go and take the reins of power. But we came up with hip hop as a way to give us a, a vision mm-hmm. of seeing how things could be. And it's not to say that hip hop is perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so all kinds of problems with it. Um, but at least it gave us 
a way to be able to figure out how to be together, right? right? We could have uh, discussions. We could have arguments, right? We could get transformed through this beautiful thing that is the latest development in this black freedom culture that has given us all hope, you right. know, generations upon generations of, of, of folks in this country and around the world hope for so many years. So hip hop was our thing. And, and we said, okay, we've got to go out and, and vote now. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at 2002, 2003, 2004. Because it's a voice of some kind. It was a voice of some kind. Yeah. So people would, would, you know, organize against a prison. They go to uh, the board that was deciding the city council or the supervisors, and they would take the mic. They would literally take the mic, and they wouldn't necessarily be like, you, you're supposed to go there in this chamber and make an appeal to mm-hmm. these people in power. And they would take the mic and they'd turn it around and they'd get the, the crowd hyped. Yeah. Because all of these people were there to say, no, we're against this prison. And the, the leaders there would have to say, okay, you know, we, we're looking at the future here. We're looking right. at folks who are actually going to get themselves organized to vote. And they would vote the prisons down. And then we would, we would continue that on and on and on all the way up the ladder until, right. you know, we caught hope literally in, in the form of Obama. And that's a whole other story. Well, listen, we might get into it today. I have a feeling okay. we could talk about a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, for people who don't know, I mean, I think some people think of hip hop and they, they sort of think about Cardi B or they think about mm. Nicki Minaj and these are great artists. But yeah. um, hip hop really began, listen, I mean, the first, I guess, single Rapper's Delight, praise be to Sylvia Robinson, <laughs> um, who really was the first person who made it, you know, a marketplace really but before that it was a bunch of black and brown and folks who weren't white and some white folks too and some white folks getting together not many yeah not many yeah but people who didn't feel like they had a voice anywhere else getting together in new york and other places around the country and sort of like sort of like speaking over disco records yeah and it became this like way for a people who didn't have any other outlet in culture to say something and that something caught on with white folks mm-hmm. and you know i like right now i'm doing a movie called bad hair mm-hmm. it takes place in 1989 during the new jack swing era and the reason i think it's so important is because those are like it's like a trojan horse to get some of these black conversations into mainstream america i mean yeah. music has sort of traditionally been our way in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I kind of want to talk about how you, I mean, because, you know, listen, you're an Asian American mm-hmm. who, frankly, I think is knows more about black culture than like a lot of folks walking around. <laughs> and there's a connection between those communities that I don't think is obvious to the average person. And so I'm curious, like, how did you get involved in hip hop specifically? And, you know, what, are, what is the connection, you know, between these cultures that honestly a lot of people don't get? Yeah. Whew, that's a big one. I know. Man. it's a We can break it down. <laughs> Let's start with hip-hop. I mean, if you think about American popular culture, it really was founded on two narratives. One was the genocide of Indians, right? The cowboys mm-hmm. and Indians, the Western. And the other was blackface minstrelsy, yep. which was justifying slavery. And was the biggest, biggest form of American entertainment. Absolutely. Really ever. Really ever. I mean, this is like where America is like, oh... Now we're a country because we're united in our derogation of black people. And people don't get <laughs> you know? that. Yeah. You know, when, if, you, you know, if these things were available and you could go back and see the first films, mm-hmm. the first silent feature films, the vast majority of those are blackface because that was so popular That's at the right. time. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then you get black directors who are moving into film, right? Oscar Michaud and all these mm-hmm. other folks who are, are trying to basically tell stories. And Oscar Michaud uh, is probably, what, the first black feature filmmaker probably, that we yeah. know in history, really? Okay. Yeah. I, Spooky, DJ know. Spooky did a beautiful, amazing box set of, of all these early silent films, mm-hmm. African-American silent films. But it was amazing. It, it's a mind-blowing set, right? Because... You think about the history of film and the birth, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of the Nation, um, really reinstalling the KKK at a moment where it's at its lowest ebb. Absolutely. And then these Which artists- Which I can't relate to at all. No, not at all. All, all by the way, over the fear of uh, black people in government, Absolutely. I would like to also point out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did the, the KKK get a- Scenes, right? A of, breath of fresh air exactly. in the 20s. <laughs> and I mean, scenes of these entire like Senate chambers and stuff like that of all these white men in blackface eating chicken and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that, right? It's just, it's horrible. This is like hailed as the birth of American film. Mm-hmm. And you have all these directors coming in and saying, we're going to flip that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, music always being the place where the there was that most fluidity. Mm-hmm. And so moving from race records to desegregating the charts for a hot second mm-hmm. before they get resegregated again, um, which again is a sort of cycle in, in popular music. Because people don't remember, people don't realize there used to be a thing called the black charts. The black charts. Like it wasn't called yes. R&B. It All the wasn't way up called to like, soul. what, like five or 10 years ago or yeah, something? Yeah, you would flip through Billboard yeah. and it'd be like, black songs. Yeah. I mean, that really was how yeah. <laughs> it was sort of figured out. In America. That's why, you know, Michael Jackson was such a big deal and Whitney Houston was such a big deal. Because they were the only ones before New Jack. Yeah. That got played on what were traditionally rock stations, which we would now call pop stations. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay. So. So yeah, Michael Jackson and Prince breaking it down, and mm-hmm. and then Run DMC, and then hip hop coming in, kind of as a way of of representing this really new diverse generation and stuff. So how do you find yourself in the middle of this of hip hop culture? So I'm growing up like any other kid, you know, uh, in the '70s and the '80s. Um, in Hawaii, it was interesting because the popular music then uh, in the islands was was sort of Hawaiian folk music that was about land protest. Hmm. And, uh, or if it wasn't necessarily explicitly about land protests, it was about, it was about like a, what a lot of Hawaiian music has been about. You know, it's the beauty of the land, the, the, the meaning of place, mm-hmm. you know, um, celebration of, of local culture. And so that was kind of my eldest cousins i have i come from like a big extended family so my eldest cousins were into that and then by the time i'm coming of age there's all of this development a lot of money pouring in from japan from from continental us and all of these buildings going up all around honolulu waikiki especially and i just one day i think i saw beach street or or whatever it was it was breaking. I think we saw, uh-huh. probably saw a break in first. Cause These are feature films for you know our listeners who don't know <laughs> hip hop feature films. Yeah, the hip hop exploitation <laughs> movies. That's like, right. Breaking was like sweet sweet back for hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. But um, you know, like looking at that, seeing these like kids of color who just had all kinds of swag, yeah. and they had a whole way of defining themselves and they were doing it visually with graffiti and they're doing it musically and they're doing it on the dance floor. They're doing it all kinds of ways. And that was just really powerful to me. And I, I realized now, like I got into graffiti because I was kind of an, you know, I was an, I was, I was an artist nerd and um, 
I thought I could be pretty good at it. And I just hated concrete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there was so much concrete going up, man. It was like, it was like, wow, they really urbanized, you know, Everything is my white, city. clean walls. Yeah, everywhere. white, clean walls everywhere. I yeah. just wanted to tag it, you yeah. know? And uh, and so that was like the the sort of entry level uh-huh. kind of thing, and then you kind of like find out that there's a whole thing to this. There's a whole history to it. Sure. You know? um, I read like every article I could get, you know, in the national press, and and I was buying every book that I could get, trying to be down, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying very hard, you know, as a kid, like a whole bunch of other kids. I wasn't alone. Right. You know, there was like tens of thousands of kids my age who were doing the same thing in Honolulu at the same time. And then I moved to California and was dropped. I went to Berkeley Mm -hmm. and I was right in the middle of this like amazing East Bay scene, like on Telegraph. This was like the height of the cruising era, you know? So just like over here in Westwood or on Whittier Boulevard or on Crenshaw, people would go and hang out and cruise on weekends. Like Telegraph Avenue and Duran Avenue was the place for folks to kind of meet up on weekends. Right, right. And you would just see like popping ciphers, breaking ciphers, rap ciphers everywhere. And I was there for about a year before there was a bunch of fights that broke out in which a lot of frat boys from the hill got beaten up huh and of course they would frame it as race riots right and, and you know the beaten whole up thing because and, they because they were neighborhoods acting or, i mean they were uh. they were they would literally come down and harass folks of color mm. i mean i was one of those kids mm-hmm. who would be like standing on the corner on a saturday night and like a mob of frat boys white frat boys coming down the hill and me and my Chinese American friend, right, yeah. like just getting roughed up and pushed around and harassed and called yeah. names and stuff like that, you know. Wow. And I'm like, wow, like we don't have this in Hawaii. This is wow. new. How, 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 how did <laughs> so, black folks treat you when you came to California and sort of, you know, found yourself in hip hop culture? Like how did, how, how did that go down? I mean, it was cool. We lived, you know, in the same, actually on the same street that I live on now. Yeah. So it was in South Berkeley because, you know, the thing about Cal is like there's no... I, this probably changed a little bit, but there was no housing. Mm. So I was in the dorms the first year. And the second year, um, you know, we have to go and find a place to live. Mm-hmm. And so we found a place that I actually found out much later was where uh, Johnny Otis grew up. Johnny Otis is like this famous white bluesman mm. um, from Berkeley. Wow. Uh, his son was Shuggy Otis, who's like this legend in hip hop amongst DJs because he made these two albums that were like psychedelic funk that... What were the really popular. Shuggy, Shuggy Otis. What was it called? Inspiration Information, I think okay. was the album. Inspiration Information. This yeah. is KCRW, so they might, you know, <laughs> can incorporate a yeah. song or something. No, <laughs> I'm sure they play it on, on a lot of the shows and stuff. Um, but it was, it was a historically black neighborhood. In fact, the first um, cartoonist, the first syndicated black cartoonist, uh, nationally syndicated black cartoonist, lived on that block, this guy named Maury Turner, mm-hmm. who later became I became really good friends with and became sort of a a mentor to me. Um, but every weekend on Sundays, you would hear on all the stoops, people would be playing this hip hop show, mm-hmm. this guy named Natty Prep. And I hung out at the radio station. So he was kind of like a legend to me. You know, the, the kids would be knocking on the door and we'd go and hang out. We'd drive them around on our bikes and that kind of thing. And it was the sound of the neighborhood was, was this hip hop show. Um, so, I mean, I never, you know, people are, people always ask me the question as if to assume, not you, but I'm saying some people ask the question as if to assume, oh, you must have 
like it must have been really you know difficult Hard, you must yeah. have been harassed or something mm-hmm. like that you know like what are you doing here you cultural appropriator right or whatever but right. i feel like that's the language of now you know mm-hmm. i was i went in like anybody else like i was a fan of the music and yeah i was a fan of the music and i was you know i was respectful and you know i, I like to say like in hip-hop you you have to show improve in the cipher mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then people will either give you respect or you just hang back in the crowd in this in the circle i mean what i think is so interesting is you you like found kind of an american home and yeah. this thing that you know came out of black culture um which is so interesting to me because in people's minds they're separate you know like you said i think the reason why people assume that is because we're sort of we're taught and conditioned to think that these sort of marginalized communities actually don't really have anything to do with each other. Um, it actually, in, in We Gonna Be Alright, you sort of, you talk about a story of, you're, you're specifically at a protest about black and Latino folks. Mm. And an, an Asian American sort of comes up to you and is frustrated with you mm. because they feel that you working on behalf of these people is somehow taking something away from this other group of people. From Chinese Americans, yeah. So like, why, why, why is there this divide in our minds? <sighs> I mean, it it goes back to the way that, you know, blackness is seen. And for me, learning about the history of black freedom movements Mm -hmm. and then being deeply engaged through the radio station, the college radio station, KALX, um, with black freedom music and understanding the traditions from like South Africa through... Um, reggae in the Caribbean, you know, which I grew up with in Hawaii too. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then of course hip hop and connecting these things together, it gave me a way of being able to voice um, how I felt I was being treated as uh, as somebody of wow. you know yellow brown skin, right? Sure. And so for me, you know, it, it, it the the sort of the sort of cultural. Mm, the cultural education and and the political education went hand in hand. Yes, for me, um, it did. And so, you know, the the issue that was happening at the university at the time, which all of this stuff repeats itself, was that the university uh, that UC Berkeley was discriminating against Asian Americans in the admissions process. Sure. And the thing that we always said was, we're not against affirmative action. Mm-hmm. We're against like the fact that Asians are being treated like less than whites in this in this like supposedly open, fair, meritocratic system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now there's a lawsuit at Harvard, for yes. instance, around this kind of thing. Because there's like a but, personality score or something, yeah, right? A- and against none Asians. of us have any kind of personality, of course. We know that. <laughs> we know that to be true. And <laughs> so, all black people have is personality. Exactly. And know? Latinos, right? Yeah, like, we don't so have much... like smarts or knowledge. We the just... way I describe it is like, it's it's weird because we can't be as white as the whites and we're less colorful than blacks and Latinos sure, yeah. in this particular process. It's just this really bizarre type well, of thing. Well, I was going to say, it, so, it, it feels like, you know, American society, the society sort of decided where each of us go. Right. You know, it's like, it. it's like, it. it's like black people can, you can do entertainment and sports. You know what I mean? Like Asians, y'all can do math. You know, Indians, y'all can do technology. It's just sort of like Mexicans, you can be laborers. It's sort of, this was just decided. Yeah. And... It's interesting how we all kind of go along with it to a we certain do. degree. Like we, we don't even really are th- we're not thinking about 
you know, that we're actually in the same boat. Yeah, <laughs> you know absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. I feel like it's and like... the boat is leaking. Yeah. <laughs> it's going down. It's going down. I feel like the, you know, I, I keep thinking about the, the conspiracy that I don't really think is a, a theory, uh, but the idea that really when MLK, when it was time, when, you know, the gov- when people got tired of him, was really when he was trying to unite poor folks. Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, I, I feel like the, the, the accomplishment, the reason why a minority mm-hmm. of white, straight, conservative men have so much control in this country is because they've made, they, there have been all of these efforts to make us all think that we're separate. You know, you sort of, you have working class white people feeling as if something is being taken away from them if they help black people reach equality. And you have black people feeling resentful of Korean Americans in their communities who, you know, maybe have been set up to have some kind of business ownership in different ways, but they're also in a very thin lane. You know what I mean? Is is it a conspiracy, Jeff? Or did this... I don't think it's a conspiracy. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, it's like, you know, we always just talk about, because hip hop's full of conspiracy theories, right? Mm-hmm, it's always mm-hmm, been full of conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And I always, I, used, I always used to think, well, there's no reason to have conspiracy theories because the stuff is all right out in the open <laughs> it's right already it's so like, messed up. <laughs> it's all right in front of you you don't actually have to look for some grand conspiracy yeah you know the stuff is right there and it's like yeah i mean we're all indexed to to a form of whiteness mm-hmm. that everybody else is less than yeah you know so going back to this incident where i'm arguing with you know another chinese american woman right yeah. who I'm looking at her face. She's been around the block. She's probably like grown up during a time where she couldn't live anywhere else but Chinatown. Yes. You know what I mean? She's got kids and grandkids that she wants to to be able to go to the best schools like anybody else does. And I'm arguing here for affirmative action, for desegregation orders, you know, to be able to allow black and Latino folks into the one magnet school in San Francisco mm. or not the only magnet school, but the one major magnet school in San Francisco where like Asians now make up not just a plurality, not just a majority, but the overwhelming amount of mm-hmm. students who are mm-hmm. in this public school. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we should be in rid of affirmative action because it's discriminating against Chinese Americans. And I'm like, how many mm. like seats should we be taking here? Right. You know? And and she's looking at me like, discrimination is discrimination, isn't it? I just want to fight against discrimination against Chinese Americans. And at some point, I'm like sitting there with that exasperated sigh going, wow, you know what I mean? This is the way that we've been taught to, to, to fight against each other. Um, what's mine? What's mine? Yeah. What do I claim, right? Yeah. And, and so we've learned from the civil rights movement that the way that we do it is to legally go and, and try to remove these so-called you know, barriers but we're not thinking about the big picture. Like, why is it that there's this one school that's a public school that everybody's trying to get into? Mm-hmm. Why are we not trying to improve all the schools? Yeah. Right? And why is it that we're all trying to get into, you know, these elite universities? I'm a product of elite universities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also can't go through this process and still believe in meritocracy. Yes. They just change the rules. They change the rules. However they want to. Yeah. Right? And yeah. that's not the point. The point is, is why is education not more available, more accessible, more affordable yeah. for everyone? Let me tell you when they fucked up, okay? Uh, you got a moment? You got a, you got a year? I want to tell you where they all fucked up. Okay. But first, we're going to take a little bit of a break. <laughs> uh, I'll be right back uh, with Jeff Chang on Don't At Me, y'all. It's a, it's a big one.
Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com slash join. Whew, that was a good break. Had some punch and some cookies up in here. None of that happened. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm back with Jeff Chag. Here's where they fucked up. Okay? Where did they fuck up? They fucked up by pretending that America was a meritocracy mm. and telling white men from the 1800s onward mm. that it's a meritocracy. That's mm. where they fucked up because we all grew up believing that shit. Mm. And when we become adults and we encounter systemic racism, institutionalized racism, we realize America is not a meritocracy. We're pissed and we're fired up and we want it to be. And the white folks that grew up thinking that all of this was because of their hard work, when they start to be confronted with the idea that maybe they had some privilege or some advantage, their belief in the meritocracy sort of crumbles. Mm -hmm. So that's the one sliver of hope that I have, Mm -hmm. is that like we all have this idea of freedom in our heads that this should be a place where your hard work and your chutzpah and your stick to itness actually pays off in equal measure. Um, I don't know how we get there. You know, I'm a gay black man. And to me, one of the great tragedies is that you have gay folks who couldn't fight for their own rights in the civil rights movement, Bayard Ruskin, perhaps being chief among them, who is a gay black man who was just out here with white boys and just doing his thing. Mm-hmm. But he was the man behind Martin Luther King. He was, he was the man helping plan a lot of those major cultural moments, but he stayed out of the limelight because people weren't ready for all of that That's up right. in the 60s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying black people achieved civil rights. I think the Vietnam situation happened and a bunch of uh, assassinations happened and we kind of got distracted, but we achieved some things in the 60s. And when it came time for gay folks particularly in the late 70s, early 80s, during ACT UP and, you know, the AIDS movements and all that stuff, black people weren't there to return the favor, you know? Black people, I don't think, in general, were even educated about the connection between the communities. Mm. And here we are again in this present day where all of these different groups are affected by this thing, this indexing against whiteness and maleness. We can't seem to work together again. Mm -hmm. And the truth is we are the majority. If we could Mm -hmm. figure that, if we could wrap Mm -hmm. our heads around that. So... Have you, what have you, I mean, I feel like you are at the nexus of so many cultural things. How, do you have any thoughts about how the rest of us get there? I mean, I'm struggling just like everybody else is. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I try to take some hope from elders like Grace Lee Boggs. You know, Grace Lee Boggs was this amazing organizer from Detroit, Chinese American woman who, um, you know, came up. And decided to root herself in Detroit. Uh, And to root yourself in Detroit, of course, meant during this particular period of white flight, rooting yourself in the black community, Mm -hmm. rooting yourself amongst uh, laborers, folks who are working in in the auto plants, rooting yourself amongst folks who were trying to find sort of a radical way to to live and be. And the thing that she, you know, always says is, is, you know, is that we've got to be able to have the imagination to be able to move to where we need to go. Mm. We have to be able to think about 
what hasn't come yet. And I think that that's the biggest kind of thing that we have to overcome. What's interesting to me is that the folks who want to preserve the status quo, they always talk about going back, right? Mm-hmm. Like make America great again. Like mm-hmm. let's go and restore who's saying, America. I've heard that to... phrase before. Who's saying that? <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay. Just something a you big, read a big, somewhere. Yeah, it's some, right. a baby. Must be some um, small community. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to go back. Yeah. You know, they want to go back to a time where the index was even more stark. Right. And for the rest of us, it never really was. And so, like, the difficulty is that we've got to be able to find a way to think about this kind of stuff in new ways. And that's why I think, you know, I'm so deeply engaged in culture. One was because I was, like, not very good at organizing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just was a failed community organizer. <laughs> it was, you know, easier for me to, to talk to people and yeah. get their stories and, you know, connect the story together and pull it all together. I was always better at storytelling than same, I was. No, that's same. I, <laughs> that's, that's my contribution. It's yeah. like, I'll never be a politician. Right. You know, I hardly remember to like text people back, let alone organize, you know, <laughs> but I can tell these stories, you know. So and it's that, super it's important powerful. because, you know, it's like you were saying at the beginning, it's sort of, it's these new stories that, that engage all of us, mm-hmm. you know, that we have to be able to tell. Yeah. You know, you have to take on really difficult questions. Yeah in order to kind of get at truths. Yeah. Um, and you kind of have to expose a lot of stuff, expose a lot of shit. Expose a lot of stuff that people aren't necessarily interested in being exposed to sometimes. Or ready for. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, just the reaction to the title, Dear White People, which really inspired Don't At Me. Right. You know, if I was a white guy who wrote something called Dear White People, there would be no animus. And I know this because the same year... I started tweeting from the account that was shit white people like or, you know, uh, stuff white people like, excuse me, and the YouTube series shit white people say and all that kind of stuff. And it was authored by white people. And so it was ironic. It was (laughs) tongue-in-cheek and it was fun. And But the minute, you know, you hear the words white people come out of a black person's mouth, suddenly we're afraid of... Some kind of overthrow (laughs) or something. (laughs) Um, It just brings up all of these fears. I mean, Which are all irrational. And so, you are. know, if you put it on the table and you expose it in the way that you've been doing or in the way that other people have been doing in their stories and that kind of thing, then hopefully it gives us a way to be able to to understand, like, you know, to see that mirror and be like, ooh, I don't want to look like that. Right. You know? Well, what I think is so, again, powerful about what you're doing is not only are you breaking down, I think, aspects of black culture throughout your books um, that are so important and I think really accessible, the way you write is so accessible. But I think you're helping people bridge the gap. Like if you start with slavery and you Mm -hmm. start with Mm -hmm. black folks and brown folks, you do get to classism, you do get to feminine, you get to the other things. But why is that the starting point for you? Like how how does that help the rest of us? For me, for instance, the, the movement for black lives put together an agenda. And if you look at that agenda, right, it's keyed towards black people. But if you really implement this agenda, it's going to help everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Economic justice, ending incarceration, education for all, healthcare, you know, for all. Like, this is going to help everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Women's March picked up on that kind of thing, yep. right? They said, you know, we can't just be about these narrow types of things like fighting over, is this a woman's issue? Is this not a woman's issue? Everything's a woman's issue. Yeah. Um, and so they, they picked up on 
on that from the Movement for Black Lives, and they created intersectional agendas, mm-hmm. right? And so folks are figuring out like how to work together in real time yeah. right now. That's exciting. You know, that's the kind of thing that actually makes me feel pretty good. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that we thought we might be getting at in 2008 and 2009. Sure. And it took us years. Because we got comfortable. We did get comfortable, I think. And, we and I think we, we, we also- We thought we arrived. We thought we arrived. And I think we also had a little bit of a, of a rational exuberance about like, you know, we, we wanted a Messiah to lead us. And we've been, you know, we've been told and we've learned time and time again that a Messiah is not going to appear, least of all somebody within this corrupted political process. Yes. So well, I, I mean, think, I there's think so many other things to say about that. But well, you know, when people get into criticizing Barack, and listen, I mean, it, he has things that are should be criticized. I think every American president should be criticized, no matter who they are. But I do think that there's this. I, I think it's a form of systemic oppression to sort of assume that the exceptional, talented model minority mm. <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a t- it's a riff off of the magical negro mm-hmm. it's like they're they're they can do anything mm-hmm. i mean it's a, it's a thing in my opinion that killed michael and killed whitney and all these people is because everyone is hanging their the entirety of their race's hope on this one person mm. and and because they were so exceptional that they emerged from this crazy you know culture we expect that they can do anything right and isn't that a form? I feel like that's a form of oppression. That is, in a way. Yeah. Uh, does this apply to Kanye as well? No. <laughs> <laughs> I never put the hopes of my race on Kanye West, so that's one. Um, I hear you. You know, I, listen, I, everyone has a right to say what they want to say. I'm more annoyed at people who like are just like, I don't care. I, I jam. I, I'm more annoyed at those people. Mm. Uh, don't at me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, listen, he can be crazy. I never thought of Kanye West as any kind of messiah. Yeah. So I think he's a, a very talented guy who made great music. And, you know, I think maybe needs a little bit more looking after than he's getting. But that's about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, but that's 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 a real thing, right? Like, you know. We do place a lot of hopes on on you know folks who work in culture to be able to to lead politically, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily what their strengths are. Yes, you know. Yes, why are we looking to Kanye West for political commentary at all? Yeah, I think we sort of conflate these things. It's really rare. I mean, somebody like a Harry Belafonte mm-hmm. is like a once in a century correct type of person. You know, somebody like um, you know John Legend. Yeah. You know, recognizes like his role is to to be able to get messages out. Mm-hmm. Jay and Beyonce and, and, and as good at now. as good yeah. at those two hats. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I could. I guess I could organize a protest. It would be terrible. Mm-hmm. It would be very. Ill. I, Vishnu, my assistant, would be doing everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing I can do is, is make a movie. You know, yeah. what I mean, that's my lane. Yeah. That's how I can really support and be a part of these other things. You know. Yeah. But you're right. We do expect them to be everything, don't yeah. we? Yeah, we want them to be. Are, are, are all in all, I guess. Yeah. All right, talk to me about what you're doing right now because I think it's really <laughs> cool because you're working with yeah. Kamau Bell. Yeah. yeah, we're doing a thing with Shannon Lee, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Lee's daughter and who runs the Bruce Lee Foundation and Bruce Lee Enterprises and Kamau Bell and Sharon Lee, uh, no relation, who also um, does a Bruce Lee podcast with Shannon. And the thing is, is like, so, so Kamau uh, is a huge fan of Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing a biography on Bruce Lee, and so I think Shannon and Sharon thought it was a really good idea to to get all of us up on on stage together, 
uh, and talk about these connections, these sort of Afro-Asian connections. And I love Afro-Asian. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it so much. (laughs) I mean, there's a deep history to this, right? There really, when you think about it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a really deep history. And I think that, you know, a lot of folks rightly are focusing on Mm anti-blackness, in Asian American communities and Asian communities. Like the the level of anti-blackness that you see happening in China, for instance, is just crazy. It's egregious. It's it's insane. It's horrible. You know, and and these are just the things that we're seeing reported. But there's this deep history as well of these interchanges, these exchanges that happened. You know, somebody like Robin D.G. Kelly, who's a professor here at UCLA, um, has tracked, you know, the kinds of, influences that went back and forth during the anti-colonial period Mm -hmm. and how that plays out, you know, in the U S and stuff. And I'm a product of, you know, uh, generations of folks in the Bay area who generations of Asians and Pacific Islanders who have taken a lot of, um, inspiration from the African American, um, struggle Mm -hmm. from the black freedom struggle from black freedom culture. Um, and, and there's like all these really cool kinds of things, but you know, like Bruce's first U.S. you know like student was a black man, Jesse mm. Glover, you know, and it, you know it goes all the way on up to his his deep friendship with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, sure, you know, and and so you know there's there's a there's an interesting thing that's kind of happening now where there's a lot of policing, especially I think on, on campuses around questions of cultural appropriation. And in some ways um, it's, it's a necessary conversation that should have been had uh, for many, many, many years. But I think also the ways in which we talk about it though, like are, are ahistorical, Mm -hmm. you know, people don't necessarily understand these deep linkages between communities. I mean, it's not taught. It's not taught. It's not taught. In, in, in LA, in San Francisco, you know, uh, when Japanese Americans were, were, uh, incarcerated, you know, during the 1940s, during Mm -hmm. world war two, um, they live side by side with black residents. Absolutely. You know, Bronzeville was right next to where little Tokyo was. It was actually the same neighborhoods. Right. Right. And in many cases, African-Americans were caretakers of the stores and the properties and the buildings and that kind of thing while Japanese-Americans were incarcerated. Um, and these kinds of histories are not told. Yeah. You know, the kinds of histories of, of sharing between, uh, you know, students in Chinatown and the Black Panthers, for instance, mm. you know, all of these different kinds of things are, are routinely kind of excised. And yes. so we have this kind of thing now where, you know, in cult- like we use cultural appropriation to say that is my culture mm-hmm. and yet we use the language of property. So it's my property. Absolutely. You can't touch my property. And where did we learn that from? We learned um, it from capitalism and ex- we learned it from whiteness. That's right. right. And so it's not going far enough to be able to allow us to, to think about the exchanges that we need to build the imagination to figure out where to go next. Well, I think it's awesome what you're doing, man. I think so much, so many folks are caught up in being right and clapping back and not really seeing the things that we have in common. Um, do you have any don't at me's for us uh, <laughs> before I let you go? Like any controversial opinions, any things you want to say? I mean, I don't know. It could be uh, anything. It'd be random. It could be, I don't know. Uh, like my don't at, I hate Tootsie Pops. You hate Tootsie Pops? Tootsie Rolls. Tootsie Rolls? Why the hell would I want to lick through 
fruit flavored candy for fake chocolate flavored candy in the middle. <laughs> and it's not even like real chocolate. It's, it's not like, even real. Like, it's not even caramel or anything. It's, it's w- like. Why? It's Why did y'all ever? It's got that waxy taste. Introduce too, that nasty ass product into into popular culture, and why are y'all eating these tootsie pops? It's wrong. That's it's my wrong. don't at me. What's yours, Jeff? <laughs> I don't know if I could really top that, man. <laughs> I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can. All right, best hip hop act 2018. Come on, bring the don't at yes. me. Best hip hop act in 2018. Man, this is so hard because it changes like every day. That's right. It is hard. You know? Let's make some people angry. It's actually been a good year, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's been a pretty good year for hip hop. Who's the one? Who's the winner? That's hard. I, yeah, it that's is. hard. I, Life's hard, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I'll, I'll say this. I'm really excited about Earth Gang. Mm. I don't know why. There's something that's like kind of like, people that I appeals think, to. Who's Earth Gang? So Earth Gang is this group from Atlanta. Yep. And and to me, like they just they can do everything, and they for whatever reason they only release like these short EPs, mm. you know, uh, of things. But but they remind me of Outkast at their best, you know. And they just they're dope. They're All really right, really dope. Don't add Jeff. It ain't Kendrick. It's Earth Gang. <laughs> Yo, Kendrick's dope though. He's dope. Kendrick's dope. Kendrick's I just, want, definitely people, I just dope. want people to get upset with you, Jeff, so I can share the love. All right, man. <laughs> definitely get upset with me. But you won't. You listen to Earth Gang, you won't be upset at me at all. That's great. That's yeah. a great that's a great one. Um Well, I feel like if folks get into your books, man, they're gonna find a whole bunch of things. Um so I'm just gonna run it down for people. Can't stop, won't stop, two thousand five, who we be, the colorization of America. We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Resegregation, and you're writing a new book on Bruce Lee and Afro-Asianism. Where can people find you online? You can check out on Twitter, I'm at Zentronics. Zentronics. Break that down. At Zen what now? Zentronics. Z-E-N-T-R-O-N-I-X. Excellent. All right. So that's how we find Jeff, man. Thank you so much for being here, dude. Thanks for having me, man. We could do an 18 part. I say this every time. (laughs) We got so much more stuff to talk about. But I really yeah. appreciate you being here, man. I've, I've Obviously, I'm a fan of yours. Your books mean a lot to me, and I'm so glad appreciate we were it. friends and we got to do this. Likewise, likewise, man. Thanks, your work dude. is so deep and so amazing, and it just moves me every time. Checks so. in the mail. Um, <laughs> this was great, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Goodbye, sir. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, I'd like to thank my very special guest, Jeff Chang, producer Gina Delvag, head of programming, Gary Scott, who just has fantastic hair, audio engineers Phil Richards and Ray Guarna, production assistants from Vishnu Vallabhanani, music by Chris Bowers. I'm Justin Simeon. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your app of choice. I love to name things the opposite of what I want you to do. I do want you to add me. You're free to add me. At me at jsim07 on all the things. More next week from Don't At Me on the one and only KCRW.